This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Clean water is one of the most important resources on the planet. Northeast Iowa is one of the greatest places I've ever been for trout fishing. Trout fishing requires clean, cool water. And clean, cool water needs protection. Most of that protection comes from volunteers. Today's guest, Hunter Slifka, is the 2022 Iowa Agriculture Water Alliance, Iowa Watershed Coordinator of the Year. In Episode 7 of Prairie Profits TV, we're in Decorah, where we learn about the importance of clean water for making good beer, and we explore a few trout streams ourselves to learn about what makes this part of the country so good for trout fishing. Now, having read about Hunter and his efforts, I know I need to tip my cap to him and a number of his colleagues for the work they're doing to ensure there's clean water in Northeast Iowa for all. Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hey, thanks for thanks for having me. And congratulations on your award. Yeah, thank you very much. Let's talk about how you became passionate about water quality in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was it was kind of I fell into it. You could say a lot of folks, especially at a young age, they don't understand that this job or this avenue even exists. And I was one of them. I was the person that wanted to go to school to be a part of the DNR as a CEO. Um, and kind of one thing led to another as far as volunteerism. I mean, a man named Neil Schaefer, who's a watershed coordinator still here in Howard County with me, introduced me all of that and had me come in and volunteer in the office. And it took me a very, very short time to figure out that I wanted to pursue this passion of water quality and soil conservation and, and stay in my community and, and work with the, the folks that I've always been around. Now, for listeners that may not know what a watershed is, can you explain that? This is a question that a lot of people probably have and maybe can't give the, the correct answer. But honestly, I don't know if there's a wrong answer. We do a lot of different uh, field education days and things like that, especially with younger students. And that's always something I like to talk about. And I always try to simplify it the best I can. I mean, Gary Sigworth, who's an Iowa DNR fisheries biologist down in in Clayton County there, he's the one who truly showed me this experiment. Basically, what we do is we grab a branch off a tree that has some leaves off it, and we use that. The leaves of of the branch are the fields or maybe the small ponds. And those all can join together on a, on a small limb or a stick. And that's kind of maybe our small streams or creeks. And then that eventually converges to the main stem, which is going to be like our rivers or larger bodies of water. And that all confluences to one area. And so when we try to explain it that way. Basically, anything that drains to a specific area is, is your watershed. Wow, that's a great analogy. I've never heard that one before like it a lot yeah. i might have to use that in the future <laughs> yeah that's what makes uh what, what makes folks great is you you take things from other people and mold it in your little bit of way and and run with it now when i think about iowa i typically think of the field of dreams flat yeah. corn fields soybean fields you know it's the largest agricultural state in our country as far as row crops are concerned most mm-hmm. people don't think of rolling hills with beautiful crystal clear spring creeks as what they would expect to find in Iowa. Can you explain what the driftless region is and why it's so important? 
Definitely. And I guess as far as where we live in Howard County, we're right on the edge of it. So we get to see kind of the best of both worlds. We get that driftless and we get the Iowan surface, but really that driftless area is so important just because of, of maybe the fragileness to it. Um, that driftless area has the, the karst topography. It's got the sinkholes. It's got the cold water streams. Obviously you see so much different terrain, especially the closer you get to the river and that sort of thing. It's really second to none. I mean, I'm sure there's other areas in the nation and the world that are, that are similar or maybe better, but personally I'm, I'm the homebody guy and I truly believe that this is God's country. Now the Turkey river, that's real central to the work that you've been doing on water quality. Correct. Yeah. So I have a, uh, a watershed project that is the, the headwaters of the Turkey river. So I'm all right. It starts from a tile outlet in a field and it eventually converges and builds what we call the the branches or we have multiple branches of the turkey river which then eventually makes our main branch of the turkey river which everyone knows um is on and that sort of thing which is about where the end of the the watershed project ends and then goes into the next county and into the next project area so i read an article that was featured about you called walking in water by dan looker that's a really good very interesting article And in it, you're talking about water quality and bank stability as two key components of what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the methods and means of achieving both water quality and bank stability? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there's, like we said, we can go on for hours and hours and hours and and get somewhere, maybe not get somewhere, but really what what it comes down to is we feel like it's our responsibility as myself, the watershed coordinators, the farmers, the community of Cresco and that sort of thing, being we are the headwaters, we are the very start of this water body to do the best we can and to get that water quality started in the right foot. And that ultimately starts with our farmers. It takes grassroots effort there. And where we, we've really been stapling down on our, our water quality is, is a couple things. Is one, cover crop adoption and native prairie and reduced tillage are really the, the three things. And with that, then we can start to work on our our in-stream issues, problems, whatever we want to maybe call them. And that's where we can talk about our bank stability because without good upland treatment, we're only putting a Band-Aid on things. And so once we get a decent grasp on our upland, that's when we really dive into our in-stream bank stability issues and that in-stream habitat and all that good stuff that comes with it. For people who are interested in learning about watersheds, Episodes four and five of Prairie Prophets TV, we started in North Missouri on the Grand River and we followed that watershed all the way to the Gulf of Mexico at the end of the Mississippi River. We talked Mm -hmm. to people all along the way about how life along the river affects them. We looked at the environment, we looked at the economy and everything that's tied together. Where you're talking about is even much further upstream than where we began. So it really shows how we are all connected by water. It's the source of life, not only for us, but for plants and animals along its entire course from where it bubbles up out of the ground to where it ends going into the ocean. And I really applaud you for doing the work at the headwaters. Uh, It's very critical to protect those headwater areas as well as the entire course of these rivers. And you talk Mm -hmm. a lot about farmers and farmer involvement in the water quality through different practices like 
lining native grasses along the waterway. How are you guys incorporating that practice? So we, uh, we're pretty, we're pretty thankful before my time, well before probably predecessors and stuff like that. We've always been very lucky to have a high involvement and a high enrollment in native grasses and the CRP program and that sort of thing. So we've started on the right foot to begin with, which definitely is attributed to a lot of the success since then. But we're very lucky enough where we have like-minded farmers and landowners that understand the water quality issues and can come in and feel comfortable coming to talk to us at a, at a USDA office and wanting to enroll small areas that maybe are prone to erosion or are near the waterways or in some instances they, they have other goals where they want to add larger blocks of habitat for hunting purposes, for pollinator purposes. So everyone has different goals in mind, but ultimately we're all trying to work towards that same goal and that's that's the water quality. But it's just the different avenues that you get there. But we we do a lot of the, the CRP sign up. The way programs are right now, they're they're lucrative. They're very customer friendly. And as a, a employees, we always try to say we are the buffer between that landowner and farmer and the government because we all know there's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of process in between there, and we want to make that as easy for that landowner as we can to have the best situation and the best outcome for them. I like that you guys are in Howard County, Iowa, because I live in Howard County, Missouri, which is a real rural <laughs> agricultural county. I like to brag that we don't have a single stoplight in Howard County, Missouri. Yeah, we're not far off either. <laughs> <laughs> I see here that Neil Schaefer has worked for the Howard County Soil and Water Conservation District since 2001. As a new landowner myself, I'm coming to understand how much opportunity is out there for assistance on my land, but also that some of it can seem complicated to a new landowner. Can you talk about how a soil and water conservation district exists to help the private landowner? Yeah, so I'm trying not to talk around it too much, but really anytime someone comes into our office, that most, especially as a first-time person, that's most likely not, not the first time they've drove by, stopped in the parking lot, thought about coming in. I mean, this might be the third, fourth, fifth, or even more instance that they've tried to maybe think about coming in, that they finally actually made that big step and came in. And so it is utmost important for us to make sure we make them feel welcomed and try to do as much as that relief of paperwork or loose ends or whatever it may be. So we make that so easy for them. And so just a couple instances is signing up for the, one of the most easy practices is cover crops through state cost share or equip, whatever it may be, is we fill out that application for these landowners. We, we have all their information already. We can do the little things and have that filled out for them where all they have to do is say, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in here. You just make your signature right here, right here, right here, and that's all they have to worry about and do. A lot of times, these programs don't give us great deadlines. For instance, we just got a memo today that our EQIP and CSP signups, our federal programs, have a deadline of November 3rd. Well, what are a lot of farmers doing in North Iowa on November 3rd? They're in the field. They're combining. And so we have developed that trust with these farmers that we can send them a text or a call or we can stop out and knock on that door of the combine and say, hey, sign this. We'll talk about it this winter when you when you got some downtime, and we'll, we'll worry about it then. And they, they trust us, and they believe in us, 
and we're able to, to do that kind of stuff, which then eventually leads to what success we've had up here. Now, one thing we hear from listeners is the alphabet soup. So you just <laughs> talked about Equip and CSP. What is yep. Equip? So Equip is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program. It's basically what the, the long and the short is. It's a federal program that pays incentive payments towards practices that you implement on your farm. So that can be anywhere from conservation cover, which is native grasses, to windbreaks, to cover crops, to manure storage facilities, to manure barns. I mean, there's there's thousands. I mean, the book is how many pages long of different scenarios and, and different things that we can pay for with this program. And so what, what happens is there's just all these different things. You you fill out applications for all these and you just see which one fits best as we get down the line. And CSP? CSP is also a federal program. It's the Conservation Stewardship Program. And what's crazy, and we talk about this alphabet soup, it used to be the Conservation Security Program. Exact same program, just different wording. And so this is where you get so confused and landlords get confused and it's all that as employees we can handle to try to navigate through. And we definitely don't even utilize probably a large majority of what we could. And now you expect landowners or farmers to understand that. I mean, it's, it's not fair. Honestly, <laughs> they maybe get memos and this sort of stuff that signups are open and all this kind of stuff, but it's hard enough for us to understand. We by no means expect those farmers to understand. And that's what our job is to explain it in those simple terms, explain them in those farmer terms so that they feel comfortable with it. Well, I, I like hearing that because that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Prairie Profits. I'm a really good host of this podcast because I simply don't understand most of it myself. So I'm asking <laughs> the questions that any landowner would ask as I come to understand what these different programs are, what kind of funds are available, what kind of work I have to do, and what the expected outcomes are. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a big part of what you guys are working on in Iowa, I know from my own experience with the Iowa Agriculture Water Alliance, is the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy. Can you talk mm -hmm. about what that is and why it's so important? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, that is what, when we talk about the ultimate goal, that is our ultimate goal. And yes, we understand that they are very, very lofty goals or numbers that we are trying to achieve. And those are things that we I would say maybe less than 1% ever speak to farmers about because a lot of times as you look forward as whether it's life or whatever it may be, if you just look forward to whatever that end or that outcome is supposed to be, you're going to be so overwhelmed that you're just not going to know what to do. Your wheels are going to spin. We're probably going to go backwards. And so that Iowa nutrient reduction strategy is our end goal. That's where our project is based off of, but we take it step by step where we talk about, doing those small steps as far as filling out the applications for the farmer. Make it in simple terms because if we can get through that practice or that program, that's one step closer to that nutrient reduction strategy. And what we're trying to do is obviously reduce nitrates and phosphorus and sediment to, this, to the water bodies, which then, then contribute to our Gulf epoxy down there in New Orleans. And that's, like we said, that's our ultimate goal that we're getting to, but we got to take it step by step and watershed by watershed and farmer by farmer. Yeah, when we traveled down to the Gulf of Mexico, we went through LSU and we met with Dr. Nancy Rabala, who's one of the leading authorities on the hypoxic dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And we mm -hmm. talked a lot about what's causing it. And a lot of it is, you know, what we're sending downstream from Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, 
all the agricultural states along the Gulf that have watersheds that dump into the Mississippi and ultimately send nitrogen, phosphorus, and other uh, nutrients that are not supposed to be going into the Gulf of Mexico right there to the Gulf. We're working on a, a campaign to try to help educate us, those of us that live in the heartland in the Midwest, about what we're doing to the resources downstream and how simple practices that you talk about in this article, walking in water, of cover cropping and no-till and other more sustainable agriculture practices that help keep those nutrients where they belong, which is on the farmer field. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one thing you talk about in this article that I really like hearing is 10 years ago, when you first waded the stretches of the Turkey River, uh, less than 2% of that 62,000 acre watershed was in cover crops. And now it's estimated that 25% of the watershed is in cover crops. That's remarkable growth in just one decade. Uh, It gives us hope that that 25% can become 75% and maybe even 95%. But what do you attribute the growth to at this point? Honestly, it's, it's a hundred percent the farmers. I mean, without them, this isn't even possible. I mean, that's where our job is so lucky. And that's something that I realized early on is as a, as a USD employee working in these offices, we're working with private landowners. That's 99% of Iowa is private ownership. Unfortunately, like public sector, the DNR, they get the 1% of public lands, which is very important also, definitely. But we get to deal with the vast majority of folks. And so without them, this is we can't even have those conversations. But you go even further, and it's it's the willingness of the farmers to try something new. I mean, we're, we are really salesmen, if you really think about it. We're trying to sell a product. We're trying to sell a program, whatever it may be. And they're, they're buying it. They see the education. They know the results that it takes. They understand the financial crisis that they could go through because a lot of us understand that the first couple of years of, of cover cropping may not be profitable. You may see those yield drags. You may see, like in this year, the droughts. We may not get those great benefits of the cover crop. And so they understand that, yeah, I might have a bad year here. I might not have what they say this is so great and boasted up to, but I just got to keep going. I got to keep adapting like the, the farmers have done for years and decades and centuries. And so that's ultimately where the, where it needs to be brought back to is the farmers. And then obviously our, our local staff and, and watershed projects, having the knowledge to deliver that message and deliver that information is kind of the next step of that. But without the farmers, it's, it's not possible. And one farmer you're working with up there, Brandon Reese, sounds like mm-hmm. he's kind of the, the poster guy of, of trying new things. He's into no-till. He's into cover crops. He's into aerial seeding. You know, what drives a farmer like that, in your opinion, to to push the envelope and try new things? Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to, to speak for other people, but what I what I know is that Brandon is is someone who they discovered cover cropping and no-till and the benefits of it very early on. And when you see that, whether it's the environmental benefits, the financial benefits, when you see that and can grasp onto that, you're all in. I mean, you want to make your production or your operation the best it can be. And Brandon and his father, Ron, and everyone else on their operation have, have understood that and figured that out and have, have dove in. Now, if they had bad years or disasters, absolutely. That, that's just a part of the, the operation and farming. But what's so great about Brandon is that 
he not only does it for himself, I mean, he's the point guy. I mean, if we have questions as far as seed mixes or this guy had this issue or planter issues, whatever it may be, we can direct those folks right to Brandon. And Brandon is more than willing to have that open ear to deliver whatever kind of information or research or knowledge he may have. And we all know farmers are more likely and more uh, um, accepting to talk to other farmers versus a, maybe an NRCS employee or a USDA employee, whatever it may be, in an office. And so to have that kind of a person to let them lean on and let them have those conversations and then have our message aligned with it also is second to none. And being in small communities, that word gets out. I mean, when your neighbor is doing cover crops or does a grass waterway or does whatever it may be and they see it and it works, they want to do that next. I mean, that's just the, that's the nature of a farmer. Can you talk about the economics of cover crops? Yeah. I mean, so like, as far as like cost share stuff, there's all different kinds. I mean, we talk about our equip and CSP program being federal programs and we're seeing those rates anywhere from in CSP where you get anywhere from five to $9 an acre, but then build those enhancements around it. You can get anywhere from 20 to 40 to $50 an acre for cover crops and your enhancements. Through Equip, we're seeing anywhere from $30 an acre all the way up to the highest I've ever seen is $92 an acre for a multi-species cover crop mix. I mean, that's remarkable. I mean, that that's what we're able to do is provide these cover crop payments and cost share initiatives for these farmers to hopefully take some of that risk out. Where we always have our state cost share monies through the state of Iowa at $25 an acre, where that covers the seed in the application but doesn't cover the, the termination cost. It doesn't cover your your extra fertilizer and nitrogen that you might have to put on earlier on when you're going into corn. And so there's so many different moving parts and things. Unfortunately, yeah, it is it's a financial decision in most cases. Are they able to break even? Are they able to make some money off to take that risk out? Those are the conversations we need to have. And every conversation and operation in farmer is a little bit different. So our Climate Smart Commodities grant, the Horizon 2 grant, of which the Iowa Agricultural Water Alliance is a partner, looks to establish cover cropping in a more robust way, but then to be able to harvest those cover crops as a commodity and put them into our anaerobic digesters to create renewable energy in the form of renewable natural gas. So what we're trying to do is bring those ecological benefits, those soil health benefits, those wildlife benefits but also ultimately give farmers another crop from which they can generate profit. Absolutely, definitely. And that's something that, not exactly that scenario, but we have a, an operation both in my watershed and Neil's watershed that these last couple of years, they've grown their own cereal rye to harvest. They get it cleaned, they get it certified, and then they're able to use that for all of their acres, plus able to provide some local seed to other farmers to use for cover crops for that following fall. And that's where we really need to start taking these next steps. And folks are understanding that to be able to take that next step into getting our own seed. Since we do have such a robust production or need for that seed that we can have some sort of a market to hopefully get some local eco type seed, that sort of stuff, rather than having to purchase from Dakotas or Canada or wherever that may be. Now, when I think of Iowa, there's two things that I think of. You can't get away from row crops the corn in Iowa, and wrestling. So before we get out of here, reading your bio, you must have been a heck of a wrestler because today you're on the Iowa Wrestling Hall of Fame board. 
So one, I mean, who am I talking to here, man? Are you a wrestling superstar? No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. I'm just a, I would say I'm a very passionate wrestling fan, coach, at one time athlete, I guess. It's something that's molded me. Uh, my father was a wrestling coach and just kind of being brought up in the sport and that sort of thing. If you've ever been around wrestling, it's something you can never get away from. My wife probably hates it, I guess, but it, I mean, <laughs> whatever it seems, we always come back to wrestling in some sort of fashion, it seems like. So it's just, it's a family you never get rid of. I don't ever want to get rid of it. They've been so grateful to me. And without wrestling, my life definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I am today without the sport of wrestling. Well, that's great, man. Thank you very much for sitting down with us today. Uh, I really appreciate the time, great information, and congratulations again on your award. It's, it's important work that you're doing. And all of us that live downstream are grateful. Yep, I appreciate it. And I, I'd be uh, remiss to say, and I don't mean to put this on you here, so Tuesday afternoon, I, uh, I unfortunately lost my mother to a motorcycle accident. And she was definitely someone that taught me all so many things in life and definitely the, the leadership skills and the, the drive and the motivation and stuff. And if it wasn't for her, I, I definitely wouldn't be the person I am today. And, and she, uh, I know she's going to be looking down and, and definitely helping me and, and all our coworkers and our wrestling program and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm, uh, I'm thankful I'm going to have someone up above to uh, bless me in all these endeavors in the future. So, Well, Hunter, I'm very sorry for your loss. I will keep you in my prayers. I hope others will as well. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate everything. And I hope everything uh, goes well on this, this new uh, foundation. So, And at some point, I'll be knocking on your door with a fly rod in hand, and I'll meet you in person. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll get you up here. We got some native brook trout we can, uh, we can chase after and have a great time. So, All right, my friend. You have a great weekend. Yes, thank you very much. You too. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Prophets podcast with host Brandon Butler.